The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is the investigative journalist and writer James Ball, whose new book is The Other Pandemic, How QAnon Contaminated the World. James, welcome. Hi there. Now, QAnon, for most people, will be sort of aware of it as just being this kind of collection of complete mentalists who believe that Jewish lizard people are running the deep state and that they're trafficking children and eating children and, you know, storing these the bodies of abused children in the basements of pizza parlours in Washington. It sounds completely fringe and completely crackers. Can you give a sense of why something as extreme is something you think needs not dismissal, but our serious attention? I think essentially because so many people believe at least some aspects of it and believing some aspects of it is a very sort of strong indicator that you'll get pulled deeper into the conspiracy rabbit hole. A lot of this is as completely bonkers as you suggest. You know, this started as an idea that Hillary Clinton was running a kind of global cabal of satanic child abusers and Donald Trump was trying to stop it. But you now have Trump almost openly embracing QAnon. He walks on stage to their theme tune at rallies. What's the theme tune? They've someone composed something that they all sort of quite liked and uh, goes behind uh, a lot of the videos. There's a, a QAnon initiation pledge that you can take, like a pledge of allegiance, and it's that kind of music. His former national security advisor, Mike Flynn, he is very openly embracing QAnon. It's been tied to mass shootings in Australia, to killings here, to a a violent coup attempt in Germany. This is something quite dangerous and quite persistent. And what really sort of kicked it off and stopped it being just a US right-wing concern was COVID, which really sort of served to radicalise quite a lot more people into it. Well, Let's start, before we get onto the kind of later metastasis of it, where does it come from? What are the origins? Because you talk about having, in a sense, you've got some experience of the world out of which it emerged yourself, haven't you? I do, yes. It was born on a sort of online forum called uh, 4chan. And on the surface of it, 4chan is pretty much like any other online bulletin board, you know, Mumsnet, Reddit, these kind of things. And actually, most of its boards, it's got about 30, are pretty innocuous. There's an origami one, uh, one about anime, this kind of stuff. But it's got two fairly notoriously dark ones. One is called B, and one is called Pol. And uh, that sort of politics is Pol, and B is anything else. And I was a teenager when these things started. They're a bit different from normal forums. Everyone's anonymous. You don't get a username and sort of all of your history there. And so you kind of show that you know what you're doing and you know what it's about by fitting into the culture. And so the culture rapidly became quite silly, quite anarchic, certainly very rude. 
people would sort of fit in by swearing quite outrageously, using sort of slurs against women, against gay people. It's much worse now, but there were, even when I was on it, quite a lot of racial slurs. People sort of were joking, but... And you would often try and derail conversations elsewhere on the internet. You'd try and turn a good discussion into a bad one and wind people up. It could be quite fun. The amazing... This is your basic old-school trolling. Yeah. And so the absolute best example of old-school trolling is the... um, there's a weightlifting board and someone manages to get about 50 people in an increasingly heated argument about how to count days and how many workout sessions you can have in two weeks. <laughs> and someone keeps insisting you can work out every other day by working out four times a week. And it's such a maddening proposition that you see people doing these long posts. It's it's an absolute delight. I, I do recommend people search it out. That is trolling at its best. But essentially, when I arrived on 4chan, it was full of people like me, 17, 18, 19-year-old boys, who liked to mess around on there and then got a life. You know, you got a job, you went to uni, you got a girlfriend, or in my case, boyfriend, you know, this sort of stuff. And you had better things to do than mess around on the internet. But what sort of happened is that some people didn't get those sort of life markers and sort of stayed on there. And that's got two sort of bad effects. You've been let down by the world and so you're angrier and what used to be a joke becomes real. But then also it's like chasing any high, you need to do more to do it. Rickrolling was born on uh, 4chan. Rickrolling's a delightful form of trolling. It's quite an innocent thing. Yeah. Yes. But what would happen is people who used to Rickroll would then start to get people with pornographic images and then would start to get people with violent images because you get bored with Rickrolling and you need to do something more drastic. And so the new 17 and 18-year-olds that get there come to an existing community that's a lot more extreme and a lot more radical. And that's had you know nearly 20 years of process now. 4chan's uh, 19. And so... I kind of chart in the book that the movement that we call Gamergate, which was a sort of right-wing backlash against usually women, uh, women and trans uh, games writers, that sort of blew up on 4chan. And then the alt-right was essentially born there. Um, There's this very funny sort of genealogy, isn't there, that goes from the sort of 4chan and these betards into... Gamergate. We're talking about what the the noughties was Gamergate. Uh, it was about twenty twelve, twenty thirteen. Twenty twelve, a bit later than that. Yeah, yeah. It's been a pretty fast escalation over ten years, and then what really kicked off what we're looking at now is Pizzagate, which was twenty sixteen, and this was a very deliberate joke when the Hillary Clinton emails dropped from WikiLeaks in the election race. The issue was that. You know, it was John Podesta, one of her key aides. It was his emails sort of at the core of it. And they were pretty boring. There was nothing all that radical in them. And so 4chan decided to see if they could get users on Twitter and Facebook, etc., to believe that there was a code. And so they completely invented this code where spaghetti meant a young boy and pizza meant a young girl and sort of encouraged people to read them through in this way. And it was not that they thought this was true. It was that they thought it was the stupidest thing you might be able to make someone believe. 
And it all got incredibly out of hand, but it also got rather confused. If your code is pizza means girl, why would that have anything to do... Oh, boy, why would that have anything to do with a real pizza place? And yet, of course, this was what led to someone going to Comet Ping Pong, a sort of pretty famous DC pizza place that a lot of DC insiders go to and shooting it up, asking to see the non-existent basement. And from Pizzagate, this sort of Dan Brown-esque world of decodable conspiracies got bigger. And QAnon is re- really started as a spin-off of that. And like Pizzagate, it seems like it started as a game. I mean, this game thing, the, the quality of it being like a video game, i.e. that you've got these Dan Brown conspiracies, that you're decoding things, that you're finding stuff out. I mean, you talk about LARPing in its context. So I'm trying to get a sense of the kind of character of it. How is it that that really helped it sort of grab its audience? I mean, it's a chance to be the hero in your own story, which is always quite a tempting thing. The idea that there's a nefarious conspiracy running things is oddly quite reassuring if you're feeling that your life is going as it should be. It's sort of better. So it's not your fault, essentially. Yeah, and it's better that there's a bad guy than that the world's just like that. You've had the same shake as everyone else, and it's not worked out. You know, it's kind of better that there's some nefarious plot that, if solved, the world would be better, your life would be better. But then the second thing being that you can, from your own home, do things that could help bring them down is weirdly empowering. You'll only ever have one vote in a democratic system. You'll only ever have a certain amount of money in a capitalistic system. But the elite are leaving out these little codes and it's all ingrained in everything and you can work it out. It's quite sort of tempting. I I really should flag, it is not only sort of stupid people that get pulled into conspiracies. This is sort of one of the core beliefs, I think, that is misguided about these movements. It's often quite intelligent people, people who tend to go against received wisdom. You know, a lot of investigative journalists end up pulled into one conspiracy or other because being sceptical of official narratives is a good trait and that can easily overshoot. There are Nobel Prize winners who are complete conspiracy cranks about one thing or another. And also... And and very good structural linguists, some of them. uh, One or two very, very good (laughs) linguists who unfortunately are very, very terrible political scientists, yes. But uh, there's this sort of sense of doing your own research and being an independent thinker and sort of building up these connections. You know the uh, the famous gif of uh, from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia of, uh, I think it's Charlie in his basement with all the string on the wall? Yeah. This is sort of how people think investigative journalism works, that you find these possible connections and go, whoa. And the reality is you actually spend all your time kicking at any connection to see which ones matter and which ones are real. But... There's plenty of grains in the world that you can start to build something from. Klaus Schwab, who is the director of the World Economic Forum, putting out a book called The Great Reset, 
during COVID, when that's already a term that a lot of conspiracy theorists use. I wonder if he regrets that title at this stage. Apparently, apparently very not. Very high level trolling on his part. It's all somewhat over his head. But, you know, there's things like that. There's the pictures of the Clintons with Epstein and people smooth out the inconvenient facts and sort of push in the ones that back up the conspiracy narrative. And, and you end up with people being able to self-radicalise and feel quite empowered having done so because they're, they're really, they're being spoon-fed stuff that they're more likely to believe as they go in, but they feel like they're doing independent research. Yeah, I'm interested by a point you make in the book that you say the great mantra of QAnon is, you know, don't believe what they're telling you, do your own research. And that this actually allows the the conspiracy to be kind of more welcoming because you can kind of pick and choose. Yeah, it doesn't tell you you're wrong. It doesn't tell you sort of you're there. And very few people believe every bit of QAnon. You know, some bits of it are very, very weird now. They involve the idea that either JFK or RFK, the original Kennedy uh, brothers, are still alive or that Trump is one of them in disguise or there's some very bizarre bits of it, you know. Hunter S. Thompson has a lot to answer for bits of it. He had this sort of bizarre idea that adrenochrome was uh, this sort of wonder drug but could only be harvested from live bodies. <laughs> That's not true. It's perfectly synthesizable. We don't really know what it does or if it does anything interesting, but... That's sort of one of the theories of what sort of kids are needed for, etc. It's a grab bag of stuff. But by saying do your own research, you can select your own. There isn't a leader of QAnon to kind of say this is part of it, this isn't part of it. And so it's done very well at adapting itself and reshaping itself. It's really interesting, actually, if you watch a sort of David Icke interview. He did several very, very long ones on a channel called London Real. And the interviewer will always be very gentle with him. But Ike will constantly say, oh, there's sources for all of this stuff up on my own site. You know, everything here will is referenced and you shouldn't just uh, take it as fact. And of course... If you take the time to check these things, it's often sources that go down circular citation paths or to papers that don't say remotely what he says they do or to, but it's a huge amount of work. And while you're just listening, the effect of sort of building nonsense on nonsense on nonsense and constantly quite reassuringly saying, oh, all of the sources, you know, will be listed. It's quite reassuring. Well, it's a bit like the way that we, we kind of use Wikipedia, isn't it? That, 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 that You know that actually it's quite a rigorous site and everything has to be properly sourced and all the rest of it. But most people go, oh, well, because it's Wikipedia, it's all going to be properly sourced. I won't check the footnotes. I'll just take it as read. Yeah, it's quite rare that anyone ever really follows one up. I mean, I've footnoted my last sort of three serious books and I've had two emails ever where someone's asked me a question about a footnote. And I think in one, I'd actually linked the complete wrong poll. There was a poll that said what I said it did, but I'd linked to a different one. I must have just copied and pasted the wrong thing. And that got right through book publishing, you know, several editors, all of that. And it was probably about two years after the book was out that someone actually had tried to check it. And so they are a reassuring thing. I also, I did on one book sort of think, 
oh, referencing as you go is such a pain. I'll put them in at the end. Uh, and that was the single stupidest thing I've ever done. Yes. Uh, that was that was about a month of cursing myself vociferously. <laughs> yeah, I'm slightly in that process now. Um, <laughs> I want to try and pull back to the culture of this, because it strikes me as really interesting that, as you say, these very dangerous real-world political movements started from a, a kind of internet culture. They've kind of bubbled up from 4chan and 8chan, which are essentially kind of nihilistic sort of culture where everything's in bad faith, everything's a joke, everything's a prank. Yeah, everything is coached at about six levels of irony there. It's, exactly. it's a very strange place. And that is, you know, when you think about what politics kind of at root is generally predicated on, it's the idea of some sort of sincerity. You know, you have a view of what's good and what's bad. You know, you, you are pulling for, I don't know, collectivism or individualism. But the idea is that the series of good faith things clashing and duking it out. And here's something that's gone right into the political mainstream, but at its, its kind of very core is the opposite of good faith, that it's, you know, what, what you're interested in is not good or evil, but lulls. Yeah, you sort of have quite a contained problem with 4chan and 8chan. There's sort of a majority of people there who are engaging in play, they are killing time and winding things up. And nihilism is a very appealing position when you're a teenager and trying to look sophisticated. And, you know, you don't really have your stake in the world yet. And so what happens there is about 80% are joking and the other 20% don't realise it and end up getting radicalised and becoming quite dangerous. But usually on an individual level, on a mass shooting or a sort of violence or they get drawn into things like the incel movement from it. And that's quite a contained issue. If what happened on 4chan stayed on 4chan, I don't think I'd regard QAnon as anything worth writing a book about. What happens, and this is where I sort of bring in the other pandemic sort of analogy, these are your viral reservoirs, this is your cave full of bats, this is your sort of rainforest. It's a perfect breeding ground for mutations and for new things to emerge, but it doesn't really interact with very many people. And so if things stay there, it's kind of fine. It's when they escape and hit the big cities that we get COVID or et cetera. My argument here is that what happens is these things suddenly cross over into YouTube and Facebook. And essentially you had a a bunch of factors that did that, but some people got into QAnon and started trying to explain it in videos to bring it to people who aren't going to get into the world of 4chan. And then other people, you know, saw those videos were doing really well and pivoted. They might have been doing conspiracy adjacent type stuff already, but content creators tend to be very responsive to what's working. These videos were for years perfectly possible to be monetized. And so you could make your, your ad revenue, etc. And so people started turning it out. A lot of the influencers not really caring if there was anything to it, but it pulled in a lot of sincere people at that stage. You know, most people who believe in QAnon to some extent have never been on 4chan. A lot of them have never heard of it. And they're very sincere, aren't they? I mean, there's that, you know, you were saying if you're on 4chan, 80% of people are joking and 20% of people aren't getting the joke. We're now in a situation where it's been started off by a tiny percentage of people who are absolutely joking 
but now there are a huge majority of people who don't get the joke. Yeah, I mean, you cannot control how things will be seen and how things will be taken on the internet. I mean, anyone who's got a Twitter following of more than about three, 4,000 has done the thing where they've made a dry joke and lots of people on the internet have got cross at them because they haven't seen the humour or the sarcasm or whatever. This is, again, why I tend to use the analogy of disease. This stuff spreads from person to person. It can be very, very transmissible. And once it's out in the world, no one's controlling it. No one can just say, let's stop this now. Removing everything from a network is close as you've got to get to a radical lockdown type situation. And like a real lockdown, it ends up having adverse effects. But just because you start something as a joke doesn't mean that it will stay as one or it will stay controllable. And again, an example of a couple of stats that can then just serve to really make someone believe it is if you look, people cite, you know, 600,000 kids missing every year and they cite the FBI for that. And if you click through, there is an FBI page that could be much better worded that does say 600,000 missing children reports a year. And so it's not hard to go, well, why isn't that the lead story in every bulletin on every channel? Where are these kids? What's the... And of course, the answer is the overwhelming majority of them are found within 12 hours, safe and well. But if you sort of miss that fact, or if you sort of get told that's a cover or something, well, once you believe there's 600,000 kids a year going missing from one country alone, it's hard to then just go, oh, right, and now I'll go back to consuming, you know, funny videos on YouTube. You know, once you sincerely believe this stuff it really affects you. And of course it does. (laughs) One of the many kind of hair-raising bits in your book is this sort of furniture company that had some very high-priced IKEA-style wardrobes and things. Yes. That people started (laughs) connecting to actual real missing children. What what, what was that story? uh, This is a company called Wayfair that I think a lot of us discovered during the lockdown that sort of sells... I mean, it's essentially a reseller for loads of different, usually Chinese furniture makers. And so it's got hundreds of thousands of products on there, usually pretty cheap, flat pack type stuff. And it absolutely exploded during lockdown and demand and all of that. And they also algorithmically generate names for all the furniture. And it tends to be girls' names, boys' names, this sort of stuff, just so that they look, they've got that Ikea-ish veneer to them, even if they're not usually of the same quality. I should say, I'm a customer. (laughs) I have (laughs) bought from it. It's hit and miss. But um, what actually happened is that they had quite a complicated back end to their website that meant it was really quite annoying to delete an item and then re-put it on. And it would sort of take about half an hour of someone's time to do that. And so if something was having stocking issues, uh, the supplier would generally just whack the price up to where no one would buy it. And this was sort of a fairly common practice. But what someone did was they noticed these really quite ordinary-looking pictures of cabinets and wardrobes that should be cost, you know, look like they should cost about $300 for $18,000, and they saw names next to them, Michaela or whatever, 
And so they found a whole bunch of these cupboards and then matched it to local news stories of people who'd gone missing and said that this was a cover for open-air markets selling these sort of kids globally. Some of them suggesting that once they got to the customer, you would get the wardrobe and the kid would be inside. Others just saying, you know, the wardrobe was a cover. They could never agree on the details with these things. But one of the ones that went really viral, I think it was Michaela, the girl who had been missing at the centre of it, who was sort of then 19 or so, did a sort of really quite agitated Facebook Live going, yeah, I'm not being sold. I'm not online. Like, I'm pregnant. You know, I'm leave me be. Like, you know, I've got a kid on the way. I'm trying to just... She'd been, she'd been found long before this thing she'd went on She'd been found within about 24 hours. One of these complicated home life type situations that these usually are. And she was clearly quite reasonably quite distressed that all of these people were suggesting she was in this bizarre situation. But then people started really overanalyzing that video and saying they thought she was being compelled to speak or that you could see a reflection of, you know, people in hoods outside the shot. Or, And again, some of those people will have been trolling, but others were doing it very seriously. It's always really quite complex to try and get the mix of what's going on in these things. And as much as there are a lot of people who are sort of victims of QAnon, you know, fall down this rabbit hole where they start to a state of such sort of radical epistemological doubt that they become immune to disproof. There are people, are they not funneling them down those rabbit holes? I, I wonder if you could talk a bit about how you think this has been allowed to get so big, because certainly some of the blame goes on bad faith grifters who are, as you say, you know, don't really care whether it's true or not, but no, they can make money from it. But the platforms themselves, in your account of it, have have something to answer for. Uh, yes, they do. Although I think what platforms should do for these things gets quite complex. It's tempting to say you should just ban conspiracies, but at what point does something become a conspiracy? If people are speculating about Epstein, you know, you might not regard it in good taste, but is that bannable? At what point does that speculation cross the line into being QAnon adjacent? At what point does vaccine scepticism turn into Bill Gates is trying to sterilise the world? You know, at what point does, considering the lab leak theory, which is possible but unlikely as a cause for COVID, turn into saying it was a bioweapon designed to kill everyone except Ashkenazi Jews and uh, people of uh, Chinese ethnic origins? These become quite hard judgments, but essentially the networks kind of duck the issue until there's a reason to act decisively one way or the other, which in this instance was the January the 6th riots. But that meant there'd been three or four years of people making money radicalising people into QAnon, the social networks making money radicalising people into QAnon. And when they took it offline, a big core community who were outraged by that, who just migrated to other social platforms that were less mainstream and that pulled them deeper into it. You know, in the book, I talked to uh, the child of, I say the child, it's an adult, but someone whose mum kind of had been on the fringes of QAnon. And once it was banned, went on to Telegram QAnon channels and it became her sole preoccupation, 11, 12 plus hours a day. 
So you've got that side of things. You've got advertisers who just aren't careful enough and ad networks that aren't careful enough about what messages appear alongside. You've got indifferent social networks who worry about political blowback. And then you've got politicians who are happy to use this stuff. Some of them seem to sincerely believe it. You know, Lauren Babbitt, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene really seems to... I mean, I'd like to think that she was cynical, but she really does seem to be just wacko. Yes, and, you know, some of them disavow it, if asked directly, while continuing to push very, very QAnon-ish messages, and they blow around with it. Donald Trump, of course, gets a huge benefit from it, but far-right movements across the world get a lot of benefit from embracing QAnon. And so but it's not just political the right. and financial reasons. No, it's not just the right. I mean, one of the sort of startling things that you say, that there's these sort of tangled threads of genealogy that go through, for instance, wellness and, you know, the kind of Totnes crystal hippie type people are being drawn into this. Yeah, it's quite easy for people to get dragged in from those views because you already have to believe that there is a whole pharmaceutical industry and medical profession that is geared up against the best interests of the wider public. Now, I am very much not big farmer are our friends and want to make the world a better place. But I don't think they're in an active conspiracy with doctors. I think it's perverse incentives around the cost of research, around what's worth researching, etc. But a lot of people who fall into alternative medicine and wellness have been let down by mainstream medicine, you know, chronic pain sufferers, people with things like ME or fibromyalgia, where there aren't any good conventional cures. So they come predisposed towards conspiracy. And so it doesn't take much to push them, especially on the idea that 5G or vaccination or this kind of stuff is nefarious. And that can lead you quite quickly to, well, why are they trying to control the population? Well, what are they doing? And so once you get into the sort of extreme sides of the wellness movement, you get a lot of people who are sort of quite QAnon-ish. And that can be from the right and from the left. I sort of say QAnon's one of the rare movements that can sort of radicalise an Andrew Tate-loving teenager and his Holland and Barrett-visiting mob. This is an unusual set of stuff. And I think there are plenty of conspiracies that appeal to moderates and to centrists let me stress but this one does tend to yes russia gate we yes. very keen on <laughs> yes i mean russia gate was ridiculous cambridge analytica you know various other things are conspiracies of the center these exist let me not suggest anyone is above this but qanon sort of pulls in from the what we think of as the traditional left and the traditional right both of whom have a tendency, whether they are overtly anti-Semitic or subtly so, to have this sense that some kind of elite of bankers and uh, the rich are acting, globalists are acting against the interests of normal patriots. And so you've got a lot of senior leaders in QAnon who are sort of vegan wellness influencer types. It's very much not only the traditional far right. Yeah, and this, the sort of genealogy you draw from it, I mean, but it's this descent from, you can sort of see how 4chan and 8chan lead into Gamergate, into this very misogynistic kind of death threats, doxing, swatting, bombardment of what they see as, I guess, liberal 
do good as social justice warriors, you know, spoiling spoiling misogynistic video games for for the good ordinary healthy teenage boy. But then that it's an odd jump, it seems to me, that that goes into the alt right movement, which seems to be a quite well established move. I mean, I know there are some of the grifty sort, like Milo Yiannopoulos, who who saw an opportunity and pushed them across. But but why does that? turn into, if you like, a mainstream political movement? I mean, essentially, it's because it's still fitted in with wider US political currents. You know, I mean, Milo himself made the jump from Gamergate, which he joined very opportunistically. He used to write very scathingly about video games and people who liked them. Opportunistically jumped onto Gamergate and then sort of saw that the alt-right was the next thing. It reminds me of Bakhtin, who, when there was a riot, sort of jumped up to, to a balcony and announced that he was the lead, leader of the revolution. You know? <laughs> so, um, but I think these were more understandable phenomenon of angry young men, and angry young men who I think had the sense that once upon a time everything would have been for them, and it is less so now. It's not from disadvantage necessarily, but from less advantage video games were for young men and now they had like queer narratives and people were analyzing them using feminist theory and sometimes you could play as a girl and she'd be as strong as the male character and you know that wouldn't necessarily be wearing a chainmail bikini yes and it was like well this isn't just for you now it's for other people too you know it's like you're gonna have to share and i think there is a sense of that same thing writ large in employment, in university places, in getting advantages elsewhere. And when you are the heterosexual white young man and you see affirmative action, that's sort of helping everyone who isn't you. You see all female shortlists or sort of these kind of initiatives. That's everyone who isn't you. You don't see your advantage because you've lived with it your whole life. But you have some very visible things that are saying we want other people to get places that would otherwise go to you. It can easily make you quite resentful and quite sort of of the sense that the world is coddling other people and, you know, deliberately disadvantaging masculine, strong young men. And that can easily start to seem like a plot or like a conspiracy. And so it's this sort of toxic combination of entitlement and resentment that sort of first blew up over something quite petty but then sort of provided a good set of narratives and tools for recruiting young men into sort of I mean often fairly openly fascistic policies and politics of the alt-right. I would have put your touch on there is this thing of of identity in that to try and understand why something as nihilistic even as 4chan right at the beginning was attractive and maybe why QAnon's attractive or you know MAGA is attractive is that it does give a lot of very isolated people the sense of belonging and being part of something. Yeah it's community it's connection and these ideological groups are a much stronger sense of connection than sort of a weekly book club or something like that you're sort of comrades you're not just friends you you share a cause you share deep beliefs you've got a sense of an enemy as well which is quite unifying and so that sense of community becomes a lot more intense it is cult-like it is what people say they get from a cult it's 
a very intense sense that there is a group around you and you're united by a shared set of beliefs and values. I think where people are often quite isolated or otherwise feel that they're on the fringe or that they have to moderate themselves to fit in, that's a very, very compelling force. And as you seem to suggest, there's a sort of event horizon of involvement in QAnon where that sense of your identity with the group is strengthened rather than weakened by attempts to talk you out of it. Yes, and here is where you have to look at people who study both cults and conspiracy theory, and they tend to say once someone is in a movement, you shouldn't try and push against them because they look to disconnect people. You know, Scientology quite openly had a policy of disconnection of suppressive people. So if your family didn't support you in it, it cut you off. And that strengthens the cult's hold on you. QAnon sort of spontaneously developed a similar thing. And of course, the logic of it makes sense internally. If you think that the world is being run in such a nefarious way and hundreds of thousands of innocent children are being killed every year, and someone's trying to stop you asking questions or doing something to fight that, well, of course they shouldn't be in your life. And so once someone is in there, you can't really do anything to get them out until they are themselves having doubts. And then it's a process of months, if not years, to pull them out of it. And so you talk to places like the ISD, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, that sort of does de-radicalization work with the far right and with jihadi sort of people, etc. They say it takes months of intensive work. You really, really, your best hope of handling these problems at scale is to get people who are susceptible or who are on the edge of getting into it and trying to sort of pull them out then when it's still possible and where it's still something they're interested in, but it hasn't yet become part of their identity. And that's not easy, but it's much easier than the alternative. Now, you talk about QAnon as being like the first digital virus of this sort, the first internet pandemic. You also talk about how immensely plastic and accommodating it is of, you know, a pick and choose sort of set of conspiracy theories. You know, you will just allow you to to pick your own version of the of the thing. Do you think when you say it's the first, there will be other ones, or is it essentially a prototype that will will never go away because it'll just change form and change shape and it'll be a sort of uh, conspiracy theory that will just take in whatever new news events happen. Gosh, I wish I had a definitive answer to that one. Um, I, I call it the first digital pandemic. I don't think it's the first digital pathogen. I think there have been... I think Gamergate was a good example of, you know, maybe that was the SARS to QAnon's COVID, you know? So I think we've had these emergences and this is the first one that really broke globally and hit that critical threshold. And it is still with us. It is still evolving. You know, it's merged with all sorts of other bits of movements, but it's got politicians on school boards, you know, in state houses, in in Congress, potentially again in the White House. It is clearly dangerous and mobilised in the real world and capable of, more than once it's been referred to me as the conspiracy theory that ate all the other conspiracy theories. Yeah, that's a good And so it. you could still see it moving and adapting 
as we saw COVID do, it seemed to just constantly get these new spike proteins so that it could infect us yet a bloody again. You know, I think I had it four times. I think I'm- yes, it does. It, 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 I mean, the, the fact that ate all the other conspiracy theories, I and mean, a point you make in this is that if its form and its means of transmission is new, its content actually isn't. I mean, that this, you know... Once again, it's the Jews. It's all rehashed. It is, I mean, as I say in, in the book, it's blood libel. It is new packaging on a very, very old conspiracy theory of blood libel, which began in the 11th century. And it was the idea that uh, Jews murder Christian children for ritualistic purposes. It is just a rehashing of that. There is very little to it that's new. It's the packaging. It's the the way that the parts have been assembled this time. And so I think other digital pandemics are very possible. There's other old ideas out there that could, you know, we probably do seeing some new variant of witchcraft surfacing soon, or, you know, they've sort of managed to pull Satanism into this one already, but satanic cults and satanic panic this is again a repackaging of that, the idea in the 80s from the repressed yeah. memory people. Well, the 1680s and the 1980s. 1980s, <laughs> this one, yeah. But uh, nursery school teachers were murdering their, their charges and all of this. There's very little new under the sun with this. It's the packaging and the ease of spread. And both of those have got sort of better or worse, depending on your perspective. It is a lot easier for these ideas to catch hold now. And it's a lot easier to package them into, you know, TikTok type uh, things or to stuff, you know, where once you might have had to send off for a leaflet and you get a four page sort of home photocopied thing. You can have something with Hollywood production values pulling you in these days. And I did sort of... Well, there's a film, isn't there now? that the Oh, yes, there very much is. But I did realise as I was sort of starting to look at the launch of the book, I did the first research for this in the first lockdown. And so I would spend a day at home only with the cats and, uh, you know, no one else at home, one hour a day sort of mandated walking around Finsbury Park. And then the rest of the day, I would be spending 11 or 12 hours straight watching very, very long pro QAnon documentaries. And you do sort of think, well, that's how you radicalise yourself, isn't it? You know, <laughs> yes, did you start to feel the tendrils of Q? I mean, I had very strange dreams, but you do also. I had a friend who was researching and looking into the anti-vax movement and stuff like that at a similar time. It was when I was working at the Bureau and he ended up having to... Uh, ring the health editor because he'd been reading so much of it and he, he just rang the health editor and went can i just check germ theory is proven isn't it we we know that germs are, are how diseases are caused and i would find myself sort of doing similar of hang on we do know x or y don't we because <laughs> when you see people do it convincingly enough and where everyone just accepts the premise they're often not putting it forward as something contentious you really have to to go. You know, 5G is is a good example of this. Some people just are a bit worried about it and think it's not researched enough. Some think it's absolutely nefarious. But in these communities, there's the big agreement that it's some new unknown technology of some sort. And I ended up phoning a, a pretty sort of prestigious scientist uh, who does a lot of research on the brain. And she went, actually 5G is dangerous. It's microwave radiation. It's the same stuff that we use in MRIs. 
And she says, you know, if I've got an MRI on full power, I can only have it on for 40 seconds or so because it can start cooking you. And she says, but she went, we know that. We know exactly how long it takes and exactly what strength at exactly what distance. And she said, it works on, it's called the cube law. But basically, an MRI is about six inches from your head. Uh, a transmitter is meters and meters, if not hundreds of meters away. And she went, by the time it's five meters away, it's incredibly weak. But she went, it is the same thing. And she went, so yes, it's dangerous. She went, but I know exactly how it's dangerous. There's nothing different about the two things. And I found that a really reassuring approach. She didn't sort of do, oh, no, it's perfectly safe. She went, it is the same thing as in one of those. And we've used it for decades. And this is how it works. But you end up having to actually go to some quite serious experts to go, hang on, this isn't the case, right? You know, I ended up talking to quite a few people who work in missing children cases. If you talk to anyone who's worked with people who are victims of sex trafficking, it works nothing like attractive young blonde woman is bundled into a car and sent against her will to another country and she doesn't know where she is and she's trying to escape and get home to her nice Christian parents and their white picket fence. But people don't take the time to learn the very complex realities of these things. And you end up with these sort of very strange stories in its place. Yeah. Now, how seriously do you ask us to take the analogy that it's a disease? So I intended it as an analogy and ended up slightly convincing myself digital diseases might be real. A virus is not a living organism. It's just something that exists and replicates. And... I borrowed a Richard Dawkins idea of memes as a sort of digital self-replicating parcel. And if we say that a virus is real, then is a meme real in the same way? And if it becomes dangerous, if it joins up in these ways that infectors, is that not as real as any sort of offline uh, affliction? And so I think it can be useful as an analogy But I think it's interesting to start thinking, well, what if actually it isn't an analogy? And what if this is how this is working and part of the next sort of stage of our development and the next stage of the development of pathogens? So I don't think a reader needs to decide either way. But I ended up actually believing it to a much greater extent than I expected to. I I came up with it as a sort of shorthand and then slightly radicalised myself. (laughs) You did your own research. I did do my own research. uh, Now, if it is a digital pathogen, a sort of mental illness spread through the internet, what do you think we do about it? And you write as the author of a previous book, I think four or five years ago, on on post-truth, in which you took a very standard, at the time, kind of liberal journalist view that what we needed was to fact-check stuff. And you seem to have resiled from that a little bit. Yep, I was wrong. <laughs> it's. Uh, I think it was fashionable at the time to sort of say, let's teach critical thinking in schools and chucking everything to, let's do an extra half an hour once a term on X as your solution to it has been suggested from everything from financial literacy to cooking to you know what. 
also anything that relies on schools you're giving up on everyone who's currently over the age of 10 which uh, seems a bit pessimistic <laughs> that's, a, that's a fair point um, and I fairly quickly resiled on the fact-checking view of it because fact-checks are usually used when someone searches for a fact-check that agrees with them to win an online argument. I don't think I've known anyone who's made a claim, seen a fact-check. Well, I know one or two people, but I know a lot of awkward nerds who like doing that and wish that everyone else did. You know, look, I change when I know I'm wrong. Why don't you? What I've sort of said in this is, I've sort of, and this is proving the contentious bit of the book, is a sort of digital public health service. And this is because people sort of think that I want, you know, a state commissar of information and pre-approved, here's what you can and can't say online. It's actually trying to avoid that. It's going, this is dangerous, but we can't just ban everything because conspiracies touch on big issues of public interest that people have a right to debate. And so what I want to do is the lightest way interventions we can that stop new conspiracies getting hold. You know, because it's so difficult to pull someone out of a conspiracy once they're in, you have to look at prevention. And so rather than banning videos that start to spread these messages, I'd rather people looked at algorithms and stopped trying to have them stop aiming quite so much for compelling and try to look at a bit of a better mix of content and offer up niche stuff less often. I'd like to sort of look at what should be monetized and should it be that political videos of all stripes are demonetized so that people pick up their revenue in other ways rather than jumping from cause to cause and getting ad money. It's looking at what can you do at that joint between 4chan and Facebook where what was a joke becomes real to people and sort of trying to tackle things there so that we're not doing what happened with QAnon where it just suddenly loads of people come to believe it, millions of people around the world. And then when it's politically expedient, it's just straightforwardly banned on all the networks, which I think we can all agree was a bad outcome. Yeah, I was going to say, if you're dealing with an actual pathogen use the idea of the viral reservoir in which they breed and from which they escape and obviously in in the real world dealing with a biological pathogen you just basically do your best to nuke the reservoir you spray ddt over the place the mosquito is breeding or whatever but our essential principles of free speech make that much harder to do don't they and also there's this point that even when if as you say well you tweak the algorithms you make it impossible for them to monetize it that still seems to have a backfire effect, doesn't it? Because, you know, we've seen that row about Elon Musk now since he took over Twitter. You know, the shadow banning, the idea that people's posts are being delisted or made invisible, even when it's not actually happening, becomes more fuel for the paranoia. It can. And and it is a case of, I wouldn't start from here. And the issue is QAnon ran unabated for years and now is allowed to run unabated on Twitter again. And so by the time action was taken, there were millions of people already radicalized. This is sort of looking for the next mutations of it or the next thing that comes along and trying to do it before it has that devoted follower base. But it is immensely tricky territory because everything in this space is so contested. And, you know, 
Elon is now saying, well, actually, a load of people who he regards as on the other side of the argument is there. It's freedom of speech, not freedom of reach. You have a right to express an opinion. You don't have a right for X thousand people to hear it. That is, you know, no one's ever been but, compelled but to always a, to a, a There's always a who decides, isn't it? Yes, there? this is complex stuff. I mean, that is why I try and suggest it is not just a one fix, does it? If you knocked down 4chan for good tomorrow, something else would pop up like it. The DDT thing, eventually mosquitoes got resistant. What we discover in the real world is you get issues like in Brazil. Deforestation means that there's bigger populations in mixed sort of contact with rainforests, and that's leading to more rapid emergence of illnesses. We will always have viral reservoirs making contact with civilization, and we will always have an online equivalent of that. But just as in the offline world, those borders have got messier and thus more dangerous, at the moment, the borders between 4chan, 8chan, and the sort of you know normie internet, as it's called, are completely unmonitored and unwatched. Is it possible... I mean, I, I, it would be a council of despair, but is it possible that there really isn't within our sound political principles anything you can actually do about this stuff? I think it is about learning to live with. You know, I think the idea that you could eradicate QAnon would, would be nonsense because the cure would be worse than the disease. It would be zero COVID. And for all that people said, oh, no, we don't actually mean zero COVID, there was nothing compatible with regular life that could match zero COVID. Eradicating QAnon or the potential for things like it to come up would end free society as we know it. So it's about mitigating it and learning to make it something we can live with and something that doesn't take over society itself. And so it's dangerous. It is a very bad thing. And I hate having to say we have to live with part of it, but I think we do. And again, I think that's why the disease analogy is useful. It would be glorious not to have the common cold, but start talking to any experts about what you'd have to do to achieve it. And most of us go, okay, fine. I'll get a cold every winter then. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's, it's that. Uh, now I would presume that you, you know, maybe even this podcast will get a few um, listens from adherents to QAnon. What would you say to them? Is there anything you can or, would usefully say? I think you end up with very little that you can usefully say. I don't think that being in QAnon means you're a bad person. I don't think it means you're a stupid person or a gullible one either. For all that it ends up in very strange places, there are kernels of truth to this. It is not stupid to distrust the intentions of large corporations. We have been given lots of reasons to be sceptical of our governments. There were orthodoxies during COVID that you couldn't question. I am still somewhat doubtful about how useful masks ever were. And I don't think that it's intrinsically wrong to have philosophical disagreements over lockdown. I just think that these reasonable things get exploited by grifters or by fringe movements to pull people into some quite dangerous positions. And I think pulling yourself out of the extreme versions of these doesn't mean having to say, I was wrong about everything, I was stupid, 
you know, please forgive me, lovely, nice liberals. Uh, and so I think that would be what I would say, but I wouldn't necessarily expect it to have much benefit. James Ball, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> <laughs>